The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me this morning is Nancy Sharp. She's an author, a blogger, uh, a public speaker, a motivational speaker, and her new book is Both Sides Now. Uh, this is, we're going to be talking about her new book, Both Sides Now, A True Story of Love, Loss, and Bold Living. Welcome to the show, Nancy. Nice to have you on this morning. Thank you. Thank you, Catherine. It's great to be here. Well, let's start with your story. Um, and I'm not obviously going to tell the whole story, but I guess it began. It's a long story. <laughs> it is a long story, so I'll just, uh, you know, sort of give an intro to this. You, it began on, I guess, the day you delivered premature twins, and on the same day that you delivered your premature twins, you learned that your husband's brain cancer had returned after 18 months in remission. Let's start with that, because I'm assuming, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's that's a good starting point, because that does become the center point of the book, Both Sides Now, because I wanted to really pinpoint a moment in time that, that demonstrated just what it was like for life and death to collide the way they did, which is very, very true in life overall. But in my case, to give birth to twins and to learn the very same day that breast cancer had recurred was just, you know, I mean, just talk about the extremes of life. Well, Nancy, was that, I mean, I'm asking you, was that expected? I'm sure it wasn't expected, but you're saying it returned and he had been in remission. So how long? Let me, yeah, yeah. Let me let me back up. Um, first of all, the fact that the twins were born um, premature at 30 weeks was not expected. But of course, you know everybody knows that when you carry multiples, and of your and and if you're at a certain age, I was 35 at the time. There's a greater chance that you can have uh, premature birth. Now, Brett, my husband, had been diagnosed with brain cancer. Um, <clears throat> before the twins were even born or before the twins were even a, a speck of our, of our hopes and dreams. What happened is that he was diagnosed with something called a medulloblastoma in 1999 uh, after a period of about eight months of just increasingly harrowing gastrointestinal symptoms that began with hiccuping and burping and wound up with nausea and vomiting and dizziness and one thing led to another and eventually he was diagnosed. Uh, I will say that he had a very full year of treatment, surgery, radiation, and he was symptom-free. After that, he was cancer-free. Nobody ever said the words, of course, Catherine, that he is cured, but you know, let me put this in context for listeners. 
that he, we were young. You know, we were in our 30s. We were in the prime of our lives. We had our whole futures ahead of us. We wanted so badly to have this future that we saw all of our friends having and everything that we had been working toward that we kind of made him cured in our mind, in our minds. We made it our narrative that he is cured. And so, um, the book actually begins with a, a quote from our uncle who's an oncologist. And when we were discussing the possibility of having a family after, you know, a very long period of wellness, again, which we wanted to believe was cure, he said this, the only proof of cure is life. And those words kind of allowed me to get some perspective on where we were in our lives Um, because, you know, what's the probability that, you know, you might not, you know, you can drive to work and get hit by a a bus or a car. But it's so almost Nancy at that age. To I mean, and when you're in your 30s, I mean, it's impossible. Not, it's not impossible, but sort of putting that whole mortality and immortality, and it's really almost impossible to think I'm not going to be here. You know, I that I'm in my 30s. I am cured. I'm I'm going to keep on living. Um, I mean, that's what makes sense to me because I don't think people in their 30s want to think about the fact that this is something that is. Uh, a death sentence. So anyway, go right. on. And we yeah. knew nobody else like us. We knew nobody else in our situation at the time, which made it all the more lonely and I think affirmed our decision to go forward even more. It, it was a brave thing to do. I mean, a lot of people have approached me thereafter and said, well, weren't you scared? Weren't you worried that his cancer would come back? And, you know, I have to tell you, um, once I got pregnant, uh, that was the single hardest thing for me was battling my own anxieties, my own fears about the what if. And uh, it took me quite a few years of talking to social workers, I might add, Catherine, to uh, persuade me that my own voodoo thinking that if I thought something or feared something, it would happen. It took me a long time to see that that really wasn't fair. Yeah, just just because you thought it didn't make it so, or right. just because you say it doesn't make it so necessarily. Exactly. Really. Exactly. So what would you say? Sometimes terms, things just happen. What would you, Nancy? What would you say in terms of like somebody else who was in your position? I mean, somebody who in their 30s was diagnosed or their spouse or partner was diagnosed with cancer and they were considering having children and, um, you know, at that particular point in time, they were cancer-free. Um, would you do the same thing over again or would you recommend this to other people? Or I, I, I would have done the same thing over again because I have two beautiful children. I have 12-year-old twins today um, who I never would have had. I mean, it's, it's inconceivable to me that I never would have known them had Brett and I not made that decision. I think that probably there was, a, there was probably always a speck of worry, even before I got pregnant. But I just wanted to choose life. In terms of what, I would, what advice I might offer other people, I think it really depends on each um, couple's values, on each couple's scenario. I mean, for example, if I had known that, let's say, Brett had had pancreatic cancer or something really that was a virtual death sentence, I'm not sure that I would have done that, to be honest. I don't think I would have. I don't think I could have. 
So I guess, you know, just to try to find out as much information as you can and to figure out your own comfort level, you know, knowing that there are few guarantees in life. But you made that decision, and then less than three years later, you become a widow. Um, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's exactly right. And I have to say, I knew on the day my babies were born, when we got that call from Brett's neuro-oncologist at Columbia Presbyterian Hospital telling us it was back, and now it was, there were tumors in his spine, I knew he was going to die. And we heard within a couple months later, after we actually switched oncologists to somebody who had a little bit more global experience, he basically told Brett, I mean, our kids were six, seven weeks old. He said, you know, you've got a 5% chance of survival. So it was a very hard few years, I have to say. Uh, Very, very challenging few years. And, you know... Um, but talk to us, Nancy, about some of those challenges, because I think that's what people want to hear, because m- unfortunately, many, many people are, are in that situation, and your oncologist was right out there. I mean, you have a 5% chance of living is, is a pretty strong statement, and you're sitting there with the babies and, you know, a husband yeah. who m- most probably right. is not going to be here in five years. So right. what, how'd you handle, you know, we're talking about both sides now, life and death. I mean, at that moment, there you are. Well, at that moment, this is really interesting, and I think it points to something that emerges a lot uh, in, in illness and when you're caring for a loved one who's ill. I heard 5%. Brett, my husband, did not hear that at all. He never heard that. He couldn't hear it because even then he couldn't take it in because that to him would have meant virtual defeat. So he always sort of took on this posture of the fighter, and he never wanted to go there. He never really wanted to accept that he could die from this. It wasn't until the last few months when hospice came to our house that he, we came to a gentle acceptance that this was going to be it. And by then, he was slightly delirious. But for me, you know, at, at that moment, I mean, it was just, you don't really know what to do first, I have to say, because there's a lot of logistical matters to take care of. I mean, the business of running a house and bills and and planning for the future. And, you know, the list is just endless. And I really needed a support system. And I actually saw a very good social worker at Cancer Care who really helped me map out my not only my my feelings, but things that I needed to do to make the path easier for me. But honestly... For families going through this, though, at some point, you just need to appreciate and savor those gentle moments together. I have beautiful pictures of Brett hugging and, you know, uh, holding the twins. And those are pure moments, and they are eternal. But, Nancy, I have to ask you, because you you said that, that Brett, he didn't really want to accept that he had a death sentence, so he didn't want to really acknowledge it until you say until hospice came at the end. But then for right. you, are you kind of sitting on it all by yourself? I know you went, obviously yes. you sought help. You went to yes. a social worker, very positive. But doesn't that isn't that kind of the? I, I say the elephant in the room because you can't connect at the end, or you you're in a different place. Or how did that work for you? Because that has to be really hard. Well, it was very, very hard. And it was something I would talk a lot about with the social worker. 
uh, both from the hospital and from cancer care at the time. And what I heard was this, we go where we need to go. So for Brett and for his mother, I have to say, who also could not go there. I mean, she just hung on every positive thing. Um, you know, they couldn't go there, and that was how they needed to cope. And I came to see, in time, because when I was going through it, I did get frustrated, I have to admit, and I thought, am I going crazy? Am I the only person hearing what I'm hearing? But, you know, I had people who had experienced this say to me, you know, you go where you need to go, and there is a certain amount of denial and illness, and that is okay. So I guess what I'm hearing you say, you were able to cope with this because you sought help. I mean, you had other support. I did. Yeah, and that's really important. I did. Because, yeah. I, and I, I did. So you, go, you went where you needed to go. Brad and his mother went where they needed to go as well. That's right. That's exactly right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, that is something when I, I do a lot of speaking at hospitals and to different palliative care groups, and people are really struck when I, I make those remarks, because that is a very prevalent um, issue that comes up in, in dealing with a terminal illness and, or a chronic illness is just accepting that people come to this at different places and that, you know, not everybody is going to jump on board with the number. The numbers don't mean anything. I mean, one of the best things actually I heard was uh, from uh, Brett's second neuro-oncologist who said he's the person who delivered the news about the 5% and he looked at Brett in the eye at his, hus- at his office at New York Presbyterian Hospital and he said, but you, Brett, are not a statistic. There is either all of you or none of you. Mm-hmm. I wonder how many oncologists are able to do that or say that. We had remarkable, as a matter of fact, so remarkable. I'm still in touch with him. It was 10 years last week that Brett died. And I still keep in touch with Brett's neurosurgeon from Columbia Presbyterian and with all three of his neuro-oncologists who have read the book. In fact, we're off to L.A. tomorrow for an event uh, there for both sides now. And we're having dinner with Brett's, this same neuro-oncologist I was telling you about who said those marvelous words. Well, it says a lot so for them, but it also special. says a lot for you to be able to, you know, I mean, you're carrying on the relationship with them. I mean, it's, I mean, it's an incredible story, but, um, now, so what, ha- okay, so there's another po- point, you know, from a practical standpoint, let's say you're mm-hmm. in a different place in terms of accepting his diagnosis. But what happens is, and I think you kind of touched on this, I mean, you have to get your, he or and both of you, your life in order. Now you have children. Now you need a will. Now you need, oh, how do you work that in with somebody who's kind of into, not kind of, but who's into denial about what's going to happen pretty, you know, in the near future in terms of his well, mortality? Well, I... I really, um, in, I really sort of took over, I have to say, in a lot of ways after the kids were born because, you know, he needed to focus on his treatments and he had a lot of treatments that first year. He had a double stem cell transplant. He had an Omaya reservoir, which is a port that's done, you know, put directly into the brain. His job Essentially, we divided and conquered. His job was to do whatever he could to get well and, I might add, to still work when he could. He was remarkable. 
he would go to work with a cane because he had such bad neuropathy. What did he do? That was absolutely. He was in business development, and at that point, he was working for Business Week for McGraw-Hill, and he was involved with the Internet. As a matter of fact, prior to working for McGraw-Hill, he was part of the Pathfinder team at Time Warner originally. So he believed in the, the potential of the Internet long before anybody else did, and it was very important for him to work. So those were his two things. I was in charge of the kids. And I really took over a lot of the practical matters, including those financial planning matters that up until now, Catherine, I had always wanted to leave in Brett's care because he took great pride in it, and it was what he did. He was a financial guy. I mean, I was a public relations person and a writer. I didn't want to do it, but I knew that... I was going to really be in trouble if, you know, anticipating clearly that he was going to die, that if I didn't start to get our affairs in order, it was going to be worse for me thereafter. Nancy, but how did you find the strength? I am picturing you, and as we discussed a little bit before the show, I mean, I'm the mother of three who had a healthy husband um, and, you know, and, and also didn't have twins. So I am hearing you with twins, premature twins, a husband with a terminal illness, someone who has to carry on all of the responsibilities of the house and the kids and his treatment and all of the ramifications of that. And anybody who has been through that with, with uh, someone who's ill as he was knows what that is. How did you do? Are you a special person? I mean, can, it just seems like, <laughs> seriously, it's well, so I, overwhelming. No, what I, here's, here's what I think, and thank you for saying that. I think you do, you do what you need to do to survive. I think for all those years, Catherine, I was just in survival mode. I fell apart plenty of times. I don't want to at all give the impression that I was some, you know, superhuman person who didn't feel, who didn't crumble. I had a lot of moments like that. But when I needed to rise up, I rose up. This is the way, this I came to see also with my pattern, is that I could be marvelous in crisis, and I, I considered this period of time a very elongated crisis. But then, when I could take a breather, my body broke down, I really fell apart. Um, if that makes sense. So yep. I, I feel like, you know, we release those endorphins and we just, we do what we need to do. Well, you were in survival mode, and then I have two questions, because were you ever really angry? Did you ever really just get really angry? Why me? Why did this happen to me, number one? And then you weren't just surviving, because the second part of the story, story is thriving. So uh, we want to do both. Talk to us, yeah. Um, did I ever get angry? You know, I don't, no, I, I don't, I don't think I ever really got angry, to be honest. And I'll tell you, after 9-11 happened and we were in New York City at the time, any thoughts of anger dissipated because, you know, I felt really very lucky that at least we were having time together and I had met a couple women who had lost their husbands and just like that they were widowed with three children that would make me really angry this situation just made me really really sad I don't think I really began to thrive which was the second part of your question until oh, long after Brett died um, you know I lived with such premature anticipatory grief for many 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 years and you might have thought that, well, as soon as he had died, you would get on with the business of living. That wasn't really 
what happened. Uh, because grief is a very thorny thing. And, um, you know, there's no linear path to it at all. But I'll tell you, when I really began to understand that uh, I needed to live was I had, I was nearing my 40th birthday. And, you know, there's nothing like a zero birthday to make you reflect long and hard about life. And I came to realize that I had, I had endured almost an entire decade of caregiving and mourning because Brett was sick from diagnosis until the time he died. It was almost seven years. And then there were those hard few years of mourning. So that was my entire 30s, a quarter of my life. And I remember quite vividly thinking, if not now, when? And that is how I came to make the very bold move to leave New York to leave all the ghosts of the past and to head to Colorado, a place that had always spoke to my heart and soul. And we, the three of us, my twins were just five at the time, we needed to start over and we really needed breathing space. Did you get support from anyone, family, friends? Well, we left all our family behind, I have to say. (laughs) And that was a very, very brave thing to do, as a matter of fact. Um, yeah, that was a very brave thing to do. But I will say my closest friend from college lives in Denver, and she and her husband and her family were here, and I had known them for many, many years. And so I thought, you know, at least we are not going to be, you know, on the street. At least we're going to know a few people. But, you know, Denver also is a much easier place to live than New York City. First of all, financially, it was much more affordable for me, which was really an issue. Uh, you know, we didn't have life insurance. Brett was diagnosed so young, and it was before we had children. And if there's one thing that I always tell people today, and it's in my book, you got to plan for life's uncertainties. It wouldn't have, it wouldn't have taken any of the hurt away from his dying, but it would have made things a little easier. Yeah, it's okay to be practical, and you really have to, and people aren't. I mean, in their 20s and 30s. That's a, good way I mean, to, that's a yeah. really good way to put it, Catherine. It's really important to be practical. Well, it's like what you said earlier. You don't want to think about, you don't want to acknowledge your own mortality when you're that young. And, you know, I wish when we got married, somebody had said, okay, you're just going to do some life insurance now because this is what people do. Make Yeah, make it make it. Not out of the ordinary, but just make it right. an ordinary, responsible thing. As you say, this is what people do. This is, you know, this is what you do. You don't wait till you're 50 or 60 years old. Okay, so now, because we only have a few minutes left, can we get to the other side? Because now you're in Denver, okay. and we right. want, yeah, and it, very interesting in terms of the way you met your husband, um, Steve Saunders. So talk to us about that because it's I'm, a great. Story. I yeah. So I'm here in Denver. I'm here about six months, and my twins are in kindergarten. And you know, life is feeling like one great adventure. And I'm feeling really good about myself at this point. I have to say because everything is new for me, and I'm the sun shines all the time in Denver. It's very life affirming. And you know, everything I did was feeling bold. I would have to say because I started to see, wow, I I really did this. I really picked up my life, and I'm really trying something new. I was feeling proud of myself. And in that same spirit of boldness, one day, I'm reading the newspaper, and I, I read this column about how there's a uh, ABC newscaster 
named Steve Saunders, who was widowed with two boys, who was being featured as one of Denver's hottest singles. And wasn't it amazing that uh, he um, was the hot catch for Denver that year? And I was so curious because, of course, I had no idea who he was. And um, I just, you know, I thought, well, maybe we could be friends. Here it was. We had a similar story. So I went to the bookstore, and I got the magazine where his picture was featured, and I thought, he's cute. And why not? So I took a chance, and I reached out to him. I sent him an email and a photo, and that was it. We ended up getting married, which is, is so crazy. It's just it's still so crazy to me. When people hear this story, it sounds like a movie. It's the stuff of movies. It does sound like a movie, and maybe it should be a movie. That's the next step after That's the book. That's what everybody but, tells us. Yeah, it really should. But wait, you, from sending the photograph in and the email, and then you said we got married, but was there anything in between? I mean, like, well, how long? He didn't respond, Catherine, to the first email. This is really funny. So it turns out that even though he was in the public eye as a newscaster, he was very shy. And he had not dated in the four years that his wife had died of pancreatic cancer. And so, you know, the newsroom was taking votes and all the mail he was getting, and they were pushing him. And it really wasn't until I decided a couple weeks had gone by. And, you know, I just said, well, I thought, well, maybe he never got the email. Maybe it went to spam or, you know, you just never know. So I decided, well, I'll just resend it thinking, that's it, I'll do it a second time, and the heck with it. And this time, he responded within the hour, and he was apologizing for not having gotten back to me sooner. So we did go out soon after, and he was very cute because at the time, his two boys were teenagers, and, you know, they had begun to press the issue of him dating because they wanted dad out of the house. Yes, (laughs) because they wanted to date. (laughs) But there was a lot of blending to be done, and, you know... um, Steve really hadn't dated much, and I I had dated a little bit toward the end of my my, um, tenure in New York, and I had dated a little bit here as well, and, you know, I I wasn't really looking to get married right away. I mean, I always knew that I, I wanted to get married again, and I certainly wanted my children to have a father in their lives, but it just, I mean, the way it happened, I... I, I couldn't. It's like the universe conspired. You know, well, but it I have out. to stop because Nancy, we have a couple more minutes left, and maybe the universe conspired. But when I listen to you and you talk about bold living, I mean that every your whole story exemplifies that bold living. I mean, you are bold. All your choices were bold. Um, they were responsible, but they were bold. And you kind of, in, in listening to you, if I were listening to you and were in a similar position, it would be like. Wow, you know what? There are other choices, and you can take make those bold choices. I'm moving from New York to to Colorado, but right. um, yeah, just all of those. And, and I'm sure there's a lot more in the book. And I just want to uh, inform my listeners that you can go to nancysharp.net, right? That's your website, yeah. and you can yeah. buy the book online bookstores everywhere. Just give us because I only have a, mm-hmm. yeah. Give us some more uh, information or uh, where you're going to be, where you know whatever is we can get the information from online. Well, if, if listeners go to my website at nancysharp.net, they can go to the events page. And we have events uh, in different cities. I'll be in Los Angeles 
this week. Uh, I'm actually going to be in London in April. I'm going to be in New York in May and, and on and on. Uh, I'm very proud of the book. And I, I have to say, um, you were mentioning something a few minutes ago about bold living. You know, even it's not as though I knew I was being bold every step of the way. I think I just did what I needed to do in order to see my way through. So before I could name it, I was living bold. And that certainly is, I think, the best way to memorialize a loved one. It's to choose life. It's to live life fully. So um, I'm very proud to have written this, this book, Both Sides Now. It, uh, it's my story, but it's really a universal story because love and loss are universal. And life Life happens. Things happen in life that we can't control. And no matter whether it's loss or, or, or divorce or any kind of change whatsoever, we have a lot more choices, I believe, than sometimes we realize. Well, I think, Nancy, sharing your story with, with so many people, which is also really important, and also before the show, you said, I mean, all the responses you get from people who've been in similar situations, or maybe just people who, as you described it, who are in situations of loss which may be different but it's still loss and 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 so some of the things that you've done really resonate um i think or people feel stuck in their lives i mean i was speaking at a rotary club in denver to a very large group a few months ago and somebody came up to me after and he said you know i've never experienced anything like you described but you know i'm feeling a little stuck in my life and you helped me see that i need to move my life in a bolder direction so it doesn't necessarily have to be your story, and uh, but very. Uh, I mean, we're waiting for the movie. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I'm you know waiting. Yeah. Producers? <laughs> You're very no, funny. Well, let's see. I don't know. My husband. My husband Steve is very funny. He says, "Well, who's going to play me?" Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well. You'll have to decide that. You, I, I think that uh, seriously, and I think that's a great idea. I do have to, thank you. You know, and speaking of movies and songs, both sides now is inspired from the Joni Mitchell song yep. of the same name. Yes, and I had heard the song many times, but the moment when it reached out to me and I knew I was onto something was when I saw that film Love Actually that was released several years ago. And Brett was very sick at the time. It was about several months before he died. And when I heard that song, it was as if my whole body went electric and I suddenly began to see, I began to feel this sort of gentle acceptance that there was another way to view this situation. Well, Nancy Sharp, both sides now go out, go out by the book, A True Story of Love, Loss, and Bold Living. Thanks so much for being on the show this morning. Thank you, Catherine. Take care. Yep. You too. We're going to take a short break. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Don't go away. We'll be back in a minute. Want to know what's going on behind the scenes with your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network host? How about what's new with our network? 
make sure you check out the iRadio blog, a look at what's hot at Voice America and beyond. Visit www.iradioblog.com today. Get the inside scoop on every channel on our network, including breaking news, featured guests, blog posts from our hosts, and much more. Make sure you sign up for our newsletter for even more inside action. Visit iradioblog.com today and stay connected. Now there's a new destination for video content, voiceamerica.tv, just like our radio channels and so much more. Voice America Variety, Health and Wellness, Business, Sports, Green Talk, Power Up Motorsports, and 7th Wave Network now have their own video channel components. Plus, check out exclusive programming, including movies, music, educational courses, science and history, current events, and short features. High-definition, premier-quality programs available 24-7, voiceamerica.tv. If you think you've seen online TV like this before, let us surprise you. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. We're back. I'm Catherine Zox. You are listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. And I'm your social worker with a microphone. And joining me this morning is Kristen Race. Kristen is the author of Mindful Parenting. She's a Ph.D., Dr. Kristen Race. Mindful Parenting, Simple and Powerful Solutions for Raising Creative, Engaged, Happy Kids in Today's Hectic World. And who doesn't want to know how to do that? Um, Kristen uh, is has a unique method that actually speaks directly to, the, to today's busy family. So, um, and she refers to generation stress. We're going to find out what generation stress is. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Dr. Race. Thank you, Catherine. Thanks for having me this morning. So it's real important, mindful parenting. We know you call it generation stress. I think we're all aware that times are very stressful, not only for parents, but for the children. So uh, this is what you address in your book, how parents, if they are engaged in mindful parenting, can help reduce the stress of families, of the children, of the parents, and we can raise, what, healthier, more creative, happy kids? That's exactly it, yes. <laughs> Sounds simple, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, right. So we're done, right? No. Right. How do we do that? Right. Well, you know... Families today are incredibly stressed. We have financial stress. We worry about college costs, retirement, health care. But none of these stressors are really unique to our generation. What is unique is being inundated 24-7 with information, careers that demand constant accessibility, and racing our kids from one activity to the next. And what happens is these stressed-out adults are raising stressed-out kids. Veteran teachers describe kids entering kindergarten today as more stressed than they've seen over the course of their careers. All of these Kristen, stressors. how do they, I want to stop you, because how, yeah. to be real specific, how do they measure that? Because like you said, yes, we, it's stressful now, but every generation has its stressors and they're very different. But how do they know, or how do we know, or how do teachers know and educational systems, how do we know that they're more stressed out? I mean, what, how does, how sure. does it reflect, yeah. Well, it reflected in several ways. In my, when I wrote the book, I talked about how Generation X, those of us between the ages of 
about 35 and 47 had been identified as the most stressed generation America in America. And this was identified through uh, the Stress in America report to the American Psychological Association. So they survey thousands of people um, about all, all different areas of stress, from how it affects, impacts generationally, by gender, all kinds of different factors. Well, in 2013, teens, the most recent report that just came out, identified teens as the most stressed people in America, which is really frightening. We've kind of gone back and forth between the millennials and Generation X, and now we're seeing that teens are adopting these adult behaviors um, or lack of stress management. And that actually makes sense. Uh, in the book, when I refer to Generation uh, Stress, What I'm talking about is a generation of stressed-out adults raising a generation of stressed-out kids. Um, There's many studies that have identified the rising stress level of kids from the suicide epidemic to the APA report on stress in America to even studies looking at elementary school students who are telling us that depression and anxiety are higher than they've ever been in elementary school students. So we're really in crisis, and it's it's frightening the, the impact of, that the stress is having on children of this upcoming generation. So, Kristen, there are very specific indicators, suicide, depression, uh, and, and I would imagine also drug and alcohol abuse. Does that fit into it, or even teen pregnancies? That definitely fits into it, absolutely. All right, so now that you've defined, you know, you have a generation of stressed-out parents and a generation of the most stressed-out teenagers ever, um, how do we get away from that? I mean, because, you know, we're all growing up and, and functioning within this society, which isn't going to change anytime soon, I don't think. So right. what do, yeah, so, and obviously this is what your book is about, how do parents and children operate within this system and become less stressed out. Right. Well, I think the first thing that's important is to understand how these stressors are impacting the way our brains function. Because when we understand that, we can understand how to adjust that a little bit. So when I taught in mindful parenting using brain science, I help parents understand how these stressors are impacting their brains and their children's brains. And in its most In the simplest form, I speak about the brain in two parts. You have the the prefrontal cortex, which is the smart part of our brain. It's the part of our brain that helps us pay attention. It helps us control impulses, solve problems. It helps us work and learn efficiently. We also have the alarm part of our brain in the back, and that's the fight, flight, or freeze part of our brain. Our hectic lives are constantly stimulating this alarm part of our brain, and that inhibits the way the prefrontal cortex develops. The good news is that when we can engage in some simple daily practices, we can stimulate that smart part of our brain. Um, This not only calms the stress, but it makes that smart part of our brain stronger, more efficient, and easier to use. So mindful parenting involves simple practices and activities that stimulate that smart part of your brain. So give us examples, both examples actually, the the negative example in the beginning when we have that part of our brain that's being overstressed, so then we can't think clearly and we can't relax and do and be creative and do those kinds of things. Give us a, an example of, of that and then... Of the, sure. 
so that alarm part of our brain was designed for a reason. It had an evolutionary reason to protect us uh, in dangerous situations. The problem is that our brain reacts with that fight-or-flight response in any situation that feels threatening and unfamiliar. It doesn't distinguish between actually life-threatening situations and situations like being stuck in traffic, having your computer freeze, being overwhelmed by your to-do list. The brain responds in the same way to those situations as it does in the actual life-threatening situations. So it activates a set of responses that pump stress hormones into our system. These impact our health. Uh, it's When it stimulates that fight, fight, or freeze, freeze part of the brain, the other part of our brain can't work effectively. It's almost as if it either goes to fight or flight or it goes to the prefrontal cortex that has a hard time going to both. So we feel reactive. We feel overwhelmed. We feel scattered and forgetful. We have difficulty paying attention when we're in that constant state of fight or flight. And the problem is kids and adults today have so many things putting them in that state of fight or flight, watching the news, playing video games, uh, worrying about uh, te- an upcoming test or work deadline, even interpreting the tone of texts or emails. All of these things trigger that fight or flight response in our brain. In other words, I think you describe it in the book, we are in a constant state of listening to a a fire alarm going off. It's just constant in our lives. We go from one thing to the next that that cause, you know, you described all the the stimulators or the things that are constantly stimulating our brain. Racing from one activity to another, I think that's a huge issue amongst uh, children today and and being involved in so many different kinds of things and feeling that they have to be, you know, take on three or four sports or and and piano lessons exactly. and music lessons and competition and as you're describing it and I'm describing it it's overwhelming okay how do we stop that well the first thing that i talk to parents about is looking examining what i call some of the hidden stressors in our lives so these are things that trigger stress but there's things we have some control over so an example would be schedules the way we schedule ourselves and our kids Kids don't need to be involved in four, five, eight after-school activities every week. And in many ways, it causes more, it does more harm than good. It causes stress for parent and child, and it doesn't allow the free, unstructured time that kids need for their brains to develop in a healthy way. So schedules would be a hidden stressor. Kristen, then how do, what do you say to parents who say, well, if, I, if my kid isn't involved in all these activities, they're not going to have a good resume, they're not going to get into the college of their choice, so they're competing with my friend's children who are involved in all of those activities, um, even though I see that maybe this isn't the healthiest thing to do, but we need to do it because there's this end result of getting, having right. a good, yeah, okay. Right, right. And I, I think where the pro- one of the big problems that happens is, yes, you are right. The way the college system is working right now, it's like kids have to start their own company and become an Olympic athlete before the age of 16 to get into a good college. Yeah. I, I used to say to my boys when they were applying, I mean, they've all gone to college, but I, we used, it was a joke in our family. Like, if you guys aren't going to dis- discover the cure for cancer, then we've got to do something else to get you into a good college. <laughs> And Absolutely, yes. And so I think what's, what needs to happen for, for parents with older kids 
is, uh, and unfortunately this isn't something we have direct control over, but the colleges need to step up and examining what they're asking kids to do and how what they're asking is impacting their mental health. We have one in six teens make plans to commit suicide every year. That means if you take the typical math class that your high school student is sitting in, four or five of those kids are planning to kill themselves. This is a crisis, and we need to think about what message we're giving our kids. We're also sending them this message of perfection. If you don't do everything right along the way, then your life is over. You might as well give up on college. And kids need to understand that making mistakes is part of life, that they can view mistakes as an opportunity for growth rather than the end of the world. And so there definitely need to be some major systemic changes in, the, in what we're expecting of our teens today. And then the other thing I talk about in the book is we feel like we need to start kids on this path at the age of four. We're putting them in peewee hockey and starting them playing basketball and in soccer practice and all these things at such a young age that they burn out by the time they're 13 years old. They don't want anything to do with all this stuff. So take advantage of that time when they're in elementary school to let them experiment with one or two different activities each season, a variety of things, so they can choose, you know, around the time 12, 13, they can choose what their passion is. And that's when you want them involved on a more daily basis, on a more regular basis, and you want them inspired and excited about it. When we put all this pressure on them to choose in first grade what they're going to do for the rest of their lives, it doesn't turn out well for parents or for the kids. So uh, everybody has to be involved in this. There's the school system, number one, I think it's really important. Um, but you, you mentioned, is, uh, you asked the question in your book, is over-parenting hurting kids' brains? Over-parenting, and I see so much over-parenting. And you've just kind of touched on that, the kinds of, just the activities they do, we, uh, you know, it involves this over-parenting, pushing your kids to do stuff with, you know, at five years old that maybe they should wait till they're 15 years old. But one of the things you said, well, okay, we could do different kinds of games, capture the flag, duck, duck, goose, all of Red Rover. I mean, those are games from like the 50s and 60s. Are people really right. going to go back to doing that? I, I, not sure, but uh, so can you, is there right. anything in between? So, you know, it's going back to those, those child-led activities. If you look at, so there's a lot of really important brain development that occurred when kids were running the activities on their own in, say, a pickup game in the cul-de-sac. If after school they came home and they had a, a regular pickup game that occurred, they have to choose their teams. They have to pick their own positions. They create their own boundaries. If a new child wants to join the game, they have to adapt to that situation. If there's a problem, then they need to solve it. When we, These are all functions of that prefrontal cortex, the smart part of our brain that helps us pay attention, solve problems, think critically. When we put kids at an early age in, say, an organized soccer practice, the coach, the fields are lined, the coach chooses the teams, they tell them what to do, when to do it, uh, if a new player joins, they pick the teams, and if there's a problem, the adult solves it. 
So kids aren't having the opportunity to use this part of their brain that they need to develop in a healthy way in order to, to take care of themselves when they get older. They're so, unable to solve their own problems as they grow older because they've never been given the opportunity. Yeah, I think that's such an important point, this over-parenting thing, which, I, which begins from day one. And yes, not allowing children to solve their own problems and making mistakes can... When you make a mistake or you lose a game, those are the things that can help to motivate you to do better and not to have parents jumping in. I think that's so important. Um, there's another, you, you talk about um, brain coolers. Like, what are some of the brain coolers? What helps us to relax? What, us, the, because the parents are stressed out as well. They have two jobs, some of them. Some, you know, you have two parents and both of them have two jobs. So they're racing and running at the same time trying to kind of, cool down and right. bench, which they're not. Absolutely. And, yeah. So let me give you an example of, of two brain coolers. Um, the first, you're right. Parents are stressed, and that's where it starts because the stress is contagious. So parents need to take care of themselves first. An easy way to learn to start managing stress is to take five minutes a day to bring awareness to your breathing. Breath awareness is one of the best ways to calm the stress response in the brain. And I know many people are thinking, I don't have five minutes to sit there and breathe. But I can tell you that five minutes that you take in the morning, maybe first thing before your kids wake up in the morning, to work on your breathing is going to increase your patience, reduce your anxiety. It's going to make you more efficient and productive at work. The benefits are incredibly profound. And if you can increase that number from 5 to 15 minutes, your, your life will change. Uh, you can take that a step further. And when your child is feeling stressed or overwhelmed, offer them what I call a three-breath hug. You simply embrace. You take three deep breaths together. And not only is this are you modeling how to use your breath to manage stress, but it feels as good for you as it does for them because often when your child's in that situation, you're feeling that stress as well. So when you can take a few minutes to breathe together, and even young children, they may not be taking those deep breaths, but they're starting to understand how to use the breath to manage stress. So that's an incredibly simple brain cooler that can be used both for adults and for kids. Yeah, it sounds Another, really, it's easy, and, and as you're describing it, if you do it and it feels good, you'll want to do it again. You've just got to take that first mm-hmm. step to say, okay, I do have five minutes. I will find the five minutes. We'll do it. And then it kind of takes on a life of its own, I guess, in a very positive way. Um, Absolutely. The, Set the alarm five minutes earlier. I think it's the amount of time it takes to order a latte. You can really improve your health and improve your life by taking these five minutes. You can even do it in the car. Sometimes I do it when I'm sitting in the carpool lane waiting to pick up my kids. I have to get there early to get in the line, and I think, okay, I have five minutes in a parked car by myself. Here we go. And also it's instead of getting on your iPad or yes. making more phone calls for business or doing those things that I think many, obviously, that many of us tend to do. Don't do that. You know, there are... Uh, absolutely. Just, yeah. And many it's, of those things are just going to increase our stress. Yes, exactly. So it's carving out that time. Another one of my family's favorites, uh, brain coolers, is a game called Rose Bud Thorn, and we play it at the dinner table. 
And everyone at the table takes a turn describing their rose, which is something good that they experienced over the course of their day, their thorn, which is a mistake that they learned from today, and their bud, which is an act of kindness that they witnessed or initiated. And they're so, this is so rich in lessons for the kids. It's a simple game that when you play it once, they want to play it time and time again. But so many, A, we're, we're increasing the positive focus on our lives when we describe the roses in our day. Kids, when we talk about the thorn, the mistakes we learned, we learned from, kids start to understand that Mistakes are okay. I make mistakes. Mom and dad make mistakes. And we can learn from those mistakes and move on. And then finally, the bud and act of kindness. Often in the beginning, kids aren't really sure. And it doesn't have to be a big thing. It's holding a door for someone or letting someone who appears rushed go ahead of you in line. And what ha- when we started this, my kids started looking for opportunities for kindness throughout the day because they wanted to talk about it at dinner. And so it's been really inspiring the things that they want to talk about. So another really simple game that can make a big difference in your life. Well, it kind of does two things. It makes each one of you think about what you're doing. It gives you a chance to breathe and think about the experience, which you may not have even thought about. You may have right. done these things but not even kind of acknowledge them. I mean, that's the first thing I think of. And then also you're connecting with your siblings, with your parents, because you're going to get a response from them in terms of what you did or didn't do or how it affected you. So there's just all kinds of kind of positive ramifications of doing that at the dinner table. Do you do it every night? We do it, you know, we probably do it three or four nights a week. It's kind of become a ritual. And it's a way, it's become a great way to keep the kids engaged at the dinner table. They sit longer, they eat longer, and they love sharing the game. When we have big family dinners or we have friends over for dinner, they love explaining the game and sharing the game with others. So it really has become a soothing, calming ritual for our family. We also practice gratitude at our dinner table, so we kind of alternate between the two. And that's another very simple but very rich practice in terms of stimulating that prefrontal cortex, that smart part of our brain where we process positive emotions. And the way we do that is we have an old pickle jar that the kids decorated and pieces of scratch paper and at the beginning of the meal, we'll just take some time and write down three things that we're grateful for that day and put them in the jar. And we don't read them every night, but about once a week, we'll pass the jar around and pull out the pieces of paper and read what everyone's written. Are you the calmest family in the neighborhood? Uh, and <laughs> <laughs> no. Well, you know, the thing is, it's not that... I don't have stress and that we don't have stress. We have the same financial stresses. I've just written a book and gone on a book tour. I am running a small company. So it's not that you aren't going to have stress. You are going to have stress. It's subtly changing your reaction to that stress, which makes a big difference. The stress itself isn't problematic, it's the way we react to it, whether we beat ourselves up, whether we ruminate about it, whether we get angry at other people, or whether we go to self-medicating, that's what gets us into trouble, is our reaction to the stressful events. 
Yeah, the stressors are always there, and we have one minute left, so that's kind of a stressor. So I want to mention the uh, the, uh, the book again because Mindful Parenting, Mindful Parenting, Simple and Powerful Solutions for Raising Creative, Engaged, Happy Kids in Today's Hectic World. And uh, you, you've certainly given us a heads up on that. Kristen Race, Ph.D., and uh, she, we can also watch for your blogs because you blog with Psychology Today, and you're the founder of Mindful Life. Thanks so much for being on the show this morning. My pleasure, Catherine. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, great talking to you. You've been listening to The Catherine Zock Show. I'm your social worker with a microphone. On uh, You've been listening to us on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. I uh, hope you have a great week, and we'll see you next Wednesday. We hope you have enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network its staff, and management.